I want a man, and I don't care who knows it. <laughs> oh, men, sister. Anywhere from 18 to 80. They don't come too old or too young for me. <laughs> well, isn't independence worth anything to you? After all, what's the difference between men bachelors and girl bachelors? Men bachelors are that way on purpose. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we have finished the 1940 nominees with the Ginger Rogers vehicle Kitty Foil, which did turn out to not be about cats and aluminum foil. Which is a real fucking shame, because that would be such a better movie than this. <laughs> I mean, I didn't hate this movie, but it was a series of bad decisions on the part of almost everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, I just like, we have definitely watched worse movies than this movie. It kind of starts the movie with this decision that's like the movie punching me in the face and then just never gives me a reason to like the movie for the entire rest <laughs> of the film. Because that weird sexist flashback of how good women had it before they got the vote. Like, women didn't know how good they had it before they fought for equality and now have to do all the shit men have to do. Was just like, why is this even in the goddamn movie? You know what's weird is I did not get that from the flashback at all. But I also was just like, well, this is irrelevant. <laughs> so I think I didn't invest that much in it to get what it was going for. The thing is, it is utterly irrelevant unless the intention of it is women used to have it really good before they had to work. Men used to just like sit on their porch and play the ukulele at them and give them their whole paycheck. And now women <laughs> have to work because they asked for the vote. <laughs> I really wish that there was ever a time where men just sat on the porch playing ukulele and giving me all of their money. But then after that, like, weird prologue that has nothing to do with anything, you're right, Susan. We are just in this bad love triangle of terrible decisions where Ginger Rogers is simultaneously horribly miscast and the one thing holding this movie together, like the one person putting in the work to make this anything. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're really not wrong. I mean, I think that there are other people who could have been cast in this movie and have put in the same amount of work. Catherine Hepburn actually springs to mind, who was apparently considered for this role, but it still wouldn't have saved the movie. I don't think there's any saving this film. And in a weird way, it's almost a companion piece to the Philadelphia story. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Because it's about the mainliners in Philadelphia during this period. Instead of being the story of a woman who is a mainliner and then ends up in a love quadrangle, <laughs> which is what Philadelphia story is. It's the story of a more common, I guess, like not American aristocracy woman who gets involved with someone who is one of these mainliner aristocrat types and it doesn't go well. Can I say my horribly gauche shit lib opinion about this movie? Yeah. The super rich people don't seem to be doing that unreasonable of an ask to me. When you have the, like, terrible super rich people scene, they're like, you should go to a finishing school where you learn how to wear pretty dresses and go do rich people bullshit if you're going to be married to our ultra-rich shitty son. 
She loses her mind about it. Then her fiance, I guess husband at that point. They're married. They get divorced over this. Right. Then her husband is like, you know what? You're right. I'm not even going to ask you to do that much. I'm going to give up my family's money and just live with you. And then she freaks out at that and just leaves. Yeah. Like I said, a series of really bad decisions. (laughs) Yeah. It is this thing where each individual scene Everybody does what they're supposed to do in that scene in this kind of movie, but it just never adds up to a character. Like, nobody ever, like, nobody ever has a cohesive character decision. They just do the thing where this is a love triangle about class, whether or not the character's decision in that scene makes any sense given their past history and their stated goals. Yeah, I mean, that pretty well sums it up. I mean, one of the major issues that I had with her not wanting to go to finishing school and not wanting to do whatever it is that the rich people want so that she fits in at their society parties, which is really what it boils down to yeah she's not like a wild artist or an activist or something where that would inherently conflict with her persona or her life or even her personality it's just that she's like no i definitely don't want to learn your weird customs and manners right she does not seem to have any goal in life except supporting her terrible dilettante rich boy fiance And so when they're like, here's what you should do to support your terrible dilettante rich boy husband, she like, why is that a problem for her? I don't understand. I understand why it's problematic. I don't understand why it's a problem for her. Right. The previous scene... God, we should go through the plot. There's no plot. Kitty Foyle is a working girl who has fallen in love with, like, there's this weird flashback structure, but honestly, who cares? She falls in love with her boss at the magazine, who's this guy named Winward Stratford VI. They have a falling out over him, like, offering to pay her a salary after the magazine folds, which what? And also her dad says he's not a good guy and then dies. And so she decides to move to New York for no reason after that, where she meets a doctor who's just a real fucking piece of work. They have kind of a love triangle as Wynn offers to marry her and agrees with her on every fight they have and does marry her and then continues to agree with her on every fight she has. And then she leaves And then he gets remarried while she has gotten pregnant while they were married and only figures it out later. Then the child dies. She meets Wynne's new wife and has a dramatic scene where she's real creepy to Wynne's kid. Yeah. (laughs) Then in the like sort of set in the future framing device that you catch up to at the end of the movie... Both Wynne and the Doctor are, like, giving her competing visions of her future where she can marry the Doctor or be, like, Wynne's weird-kept woman when he moves to South America and abandons his wife and kid. But can't get divorced because that's not okay. But abandoning his family, totally fine. Right, but, like, also so that there can be a reason why she goes with the doctor and not him. Because you get the feeling that if he just got divorced and remarried to her, she'd be fine with the abandoning the wife and kid thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
And she decides to marry the shitty salt of the earth doctor and end of film. And there's like a lot of details in there, but they all just make it worse, frankly. (laughs) You know, I think the thing that this movie does, which is the reason that it got nominated for an Oscar, is one of the problems with the movie. I think it falls to me, at least, into the interesting failure category, which is that it very purposefully and clearly switches tones and formats. The whole thing at the beginning when Wynn is like, hey... I've come to see you because you returned the ring that I knew you would if you ever needed me, which they don't actually talk about that, but okay, fine. Which is the ring that she gave to his kid in the super creepy scene to give to his dad as a birthday present. And he says, you know, come away with me or whatever. And she decides like, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then she's looking at herself in the mirror and her reflection talks to her and they have this whole conversation. Right. That's a very early 1960s television sitcom moment. (laughs) And there's some other things like that where it, it just wildly shifts into some sort of different kind of format almost. There's also like a whole period in the middle of this movie where everyone is obsessed with a snow globe and how metaphorical it is. And it's like this weird, shitty pre-Citizen Kane. Exactly. And, and this doesn't make the movie good, but it does make it innovative in the way that the Oscars are like, oh, I've never seen this before. Give it an award. Or like, nominate it for an award. This movie has a lot of weird stylistic flourishes. I think if I ever had that moment where I was like locked in and cared about Kitty Foyle, I would be a lot more sympathetic to them. And I think if just the underlying movie ever, not even just made me care, but ever like sat in a tone long enough, because when those weird stylistic flourishes come up, I can't go like, oh, this is a fun flourish. I have to go like, is this the movie now? What's happening? Because I never know what the hell is happening in this movie. (laughs) Right. And like, no, the movie isn't her talking to herself in the mirror. That's just a weird thing that happens in one scene so that we can get into the flashback. Some things come back, like the guy who runs the speakeasy comes back a couple of times, but some stylistic flourishes are just like there to get us through a scene and aren't ever anything. Like all the weird stuff with Wynne and the orchestra in New York when he comes and proposes to her. What is any of this? This is nothing. This wasn't set up. This never comes back. It's just a thing that happens. There's not a whole lot to talk about in this movie because, I mean, one, it's an interesting mess, which we've touched on. The plot is very straightforward. There's no character development. It's just a series of plot beats. Even calling any of these people archetypes is actually giving them more than they are. Like, Wynne is not an archetypical rich kid who can't choose between money and love. He totally makes the decision, and she's just like, nope, you can't make that decision, bye. (laughs) Right. The thing we're not talking about with the Doctor is, ostensibly, the Doctor has real love for Kitty and doesn't let money get in the way, 
But like, he does let money get in the way. He's just a shitty person about class with Kitty. His first date with her is him making her miserable without her permission for four hours, and then going, this was a secret test because my wife can never care about class. And it's like, that's a shitty thing to do on your date. It's not even class. It's that he won't go out with a woman and spend any money on her until he knows that she likes him not for his money. So he won't even spend $10 on her. And she's like, cool, well, we're never going on a date again because you bored me to death and were rude. And then they go on another date anyway? Well, they go on another date anyway because then he offers to spend money. <laughs> right. So it's like, what? what is any of this? Which has some, like, weird, was he just dating chicks that he met off of Ashley Madison vibe? Right. <laughs> or like sugardaddy.com. The other part of the vibe is she gets in trouble at work and fakes a fainting spell to like get out of it. And he is the paramedic that comes and basically blackmails her into going on a date with him. And it's supposed to be charming. And I suppose it could be a meet cute in a different movie where this guy had a different vibe. He's so patronizingly patriarchal. Yeah, he just sucks. I guess he sucks less than the guy that's going to leave his wife and kid and, like, not even divorce her so that Kitty Foyle has to be a kept woman for the rest of her fucking life or whatever. But, like, he still sucks. <sighs> yeah, but, conversely, he loved her anyway and she left him, so, like... The only reason that that situation exists is because she didn't have the courage to do that before. Right. And projected onto him a level of cowardice that he didn't present. Yeah. She's just like, no, you couldn't deal with being poor. And we never see that conversation. No. There's no moment where he's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I could definitely do without having a driver. None of that happens. She's just like... I'm unilaterally made this decision and we're gonna get divorced. Yeah. When her magical mirror self comes out and is like, you're always fucking falling for this shit with Wynn. You're like, oh yeah, then we're gonna learn in flashback why Wynn's a real shitty guy. But like, the only shitty thing he does is this thing that he does at the very start of the movie where he's going to leave his wife and kids. Everything he does in the flashback is impeccable. He's put in really difficult positions repeatedly. And he always is like, no, I'm just going to do whatever is going to make you feel comfortable and cared for and safe. Yeah. Every time. Because, yeah, I kept waiting for that thing to drop. Like when they go to New York because he can't take her to whatever the fancy debutante or whatever ball is in Philadelphia. And he rents out an entire nightclub to play until 5 a.m. because that's how long the party goes in Philadelphia. And he proposes to her and she says, you know, well, we can't do this because here in New York, it's fine. But in Philadelphia, you're going to be whatever fancy street and I'm going to be whatever not fancy road. And that's a thing that stands in our way. And he's like, OK, great. Then we move to New York. Like, now. Like, we now live in New York. <laughs> I have now figured out what is going on here, which I should have just immediately assumed, which is in the novel Kitty Foyle, Wynne is married the whole time. Okay, well, that, yeah. 
and he cannot be having an affair because then Kitty Foyle would be involved in an affair and the Hayes Goad can't have that. Not without them being punished for it. Yeah. Right. And so what you have here is a story where there is a guy who consistently acts like he is cheating on his wife with Kitty Foyle, but never actually is. And so the fact that she keeps acting like he is and freaking out about it is just like, you're an insane person. But that is because we are supposed to read between the lines and go like, he actually is having an affair. It's just you have to watch this universe where he isn't because otherwise we'll get in trouble. So this really comes down to the Hayes Code ruined yet another story. For sure. Then it at least would have been something. I think I still would have found this movie boring, but I at least would have been like, well, there's a through line here. You know, now it's just a bunch of stuff that happens. People keep going. Well, that relates to this. And then you watch the scene and go, those two things aren't related at all. That's just another thing you showed me. And I think, oh, that's because it's missing this through line of Wynne was never actually available to her. They were never going to get married. He can't have married her. She got pregnant out of wedlock and had an abortion in the novel. Yeah, okay. Instead, she marries him, divorces him for no reason, finds out she is pregnant with a kid that was conceived while she was married, and then that kid just dies of Act 3 tragedy disease. Yes. And all of that sucks. I'm getting to the point now where I'm feeling less like, if you can't make this movie under the Hayes Code, don't make this movie, and more, don't have the Hayes Code. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Which is eventually what Hollywood decides on anyway. Yeah, I mean, we are just kind of over and over again yelling at the past to not be so racist. I get that. Or sexist or stupid, just generally. This is yet another film where, like, the central dramatic conceit cannot happen because of the Hayes Code. And yet the movie was made anyway, which is bonkers. And a waste of film. (laughs) Yeah. And salaries and time and everything else. So should we rate this movie so we can get to talking about who should have won this year? Because this is actually going to be the interesting part of the episode. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, it's mm, three. Three where all three of those points belong to Ginger Rogers. Yeah, I was going to say four, giving it like a Hayes Code curve, but nah, three is fine. Yeah. Also, don't watch this movie. Yeah, for sure. Don't watch this movie. What movie should you watch, though? Uh, You should watch Rebecca because the right thing won. I mean, I will say it was a closer race than you would think, but Rebecca actually won and it should have. Uh, really? You think so? I do. I really like Great Dictator and I really like Grapes of Wrath, but Rebecca feels filmmaking wise. Well, no, I don't know. Here's the thing. I wouldn't have been unhappy. Yeah. Theoretically watching this live when they go, Rebecca, I would have gone like, oh, I was kind of a Great Dictator guy, but you know what? Clap, clap, clap. Right, right. Yeah. Let's narrow it down to the five that should have been nominated of these 10, because I I don't feel like all 10 of these should have been nominated. Rebecca, Great Dictator, Grapes of Wrath, Philadelphia Story. uh, And question mark? uh, Yeah, I mean, like, just, you know, whatever. Um, Foreign Correspondent, I guess, could go in there. Our Town, I guess, could go in there. I think I would go with Foreign Correspondent. 
because of the remaining ones, I feel like Foreign Correspondent is entertaining. It doesn't have any huge problems in it. Like, it's a fun little spy thriller that doesn't quite yet know how to make a spy thriller, but that's okay. Like, Our Town, you hated. I did. Weirdly, it's still probably my sixth. Oh, yeah, for me too. I did hate it. I thought it was a bad adaptation. I thought it was a bad version of Our Town. And I still think a bad version of Our Town is better than The Long Voyage Home, The Letter, All This in Heaven 2, or Kitty Foil. Yeah. I like Foreign Correspondent, but I don't love it. And like, maybe just one for Hitchcock this year. Okay, that's fair. I think I would probably actually pick Kitty Foil over Our Town. Ooh, I, um, I get what you're saying. If we can't do Foreign Correspondent. Yeah, and so like, weirdly, I think Foreign Correspondent is the safe pick for a five, even though it's weird to have two Hitchcocks. Yeah. But the Academy apparently didn't find it that weird because they actually did that. So for me, I would say that, oh, this is a hard one for me to say whether or not the Academy chose what I would pick. Like, I agree with you that I have no issue with them choosing Rebecca because it's a, it's a great fucking film. It does a lot of really interesting things. It makes a lot of strides as far as the medium is concerned. But I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm leaning toward the great dictator. And part of me wants to say Grapes of Wrath because of the timely political message that it has, which I think is actually a really important thing to think about in context of Academy Awards. Because it is good if there's actually a message film that has a good message and isn't like fucking Green Book or crash. I think the weird thing here is that if we're sitting in the year 1940 and watching all 10 of these movies, there's a real case that Rebecca is the best of all of the movies in the year 1940. And like Grapes of Wrath and Great Dictator get a weird screen test of time bump. Like the screen test of time has been helpful to them. I think so too. But that is kind of the idea of the podcast is like, on reflection. Right. The idea sort of crystallized with this five years from when the artist won for Best Picture. No one has mentioned it. No one has talked about it. No one has even fucking watched it. It was the cause celeb for that year, but does it stand up even a year later? And Grapes of Wrath and the Great Dictator both are still really resonant today. Rebecca is like- Rebecca is still a good movie. It's resonant in the way that like any love story or any gothic story is resonant, which is on a like very personal level on a very small scale. Whereas Grapes of Wrath and the Great Dictator are both really big movies <laughs> as far as what their messaging is and whether or not they are relevant to anything that comes after 1940. Yeah, I really have no problem with this. I think then the question is like, because they've both aged very differently, I think Grapes of Wrath has sort of remained more and more of a timely statement and more and more of an important statement. And Great Dictator has politically, but in terms of its filmmaking, Great Dictator also, you know, this is the thing I was arguing in the Great Dictator episode, is it feels more and more distant from how we make films in a way that I'm kind of like, I have a weird yearning for it. I wish more movies worked like this. And that's why I'm leaning towards saying that's my pick. Yeah. Is because it feels like something that I haven't seen otherwise. Like, The Grapes of Wrath is phenomenal, but I feel like I see movies like that. Yeah. Maybe not every year, but in the last 80 years, there have been movies that are that way. For sure. This is this thing where the category of politically resonant Oscar movie 
gets flattened down, where, like, Grapes of Wrath is actually a really good movie and more complex than that. But, like, there are a lot of politically resonant good Oscar movies after this. Great Dictator is taking some big swings in some weird directions, while also having that sort of sense of political resonance that's followed for 80 years. I'm fine with a Great Dictator pick, while saying Grapes of Wrath and Rebecca are both fantastic movies that I would happily see at the top of this category. Like, it doesn't bother me. I still think they deserve their tens. Yeah. Philadelphia Story, also really good, but, like, it's it's kind of a different tier when there's just, like, anything wrong with it <laughs> after that. We kind of did four, and then, like, I guess we should do five. Some foreign correspondent is here. Yeah. I mean, I think that Philadelphia Story is great and enjoyable, but it's problematic as hell. And the other three are just fucking perfect. So what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, yeah. So next week, we're starting 1941, which is going to be really exciting because we have Citizen Kane. And I think we literally start with Citizen Kane. I have Sergeant York. I'm going by premiere dates, or are we going by wide release date? Uh, I think when I put them in order, I did it by wide release date, but we can go by premiere date. Um, either, I mean, either way. I am fine with doing either one, and it is kind of a boring discussion to do on the podcast. I'll cut this part out. <laughs> we will either be watching well, Sergeant York or Citizen Kane. Okay, okay. I, yeah, I would go by premiere date. So next week we're starting 1941 with Citizen Kane. <laughs> so we're decided. We fought off the robots and the pirates, and we've come to a decision. <laughs> we're going by premiere date and not by wide release date for very smart and important decisions that Roger Ebert's ghost agreed with us on. Yes, but uh, we did have to channel him through a pirate. And a robot. And have a robot translate it. It was a whole thing, and I'm so sad that, like, my dog barked in the middle of it, so we had to cut out all of it. It happens, you know? But I, can, I just want to state again, it was definitely exactly what God and all good film critics would want us to do. And we found that out objectively. Tune in next week when we watch what is likely to be the best film for two and a half months. It's a real good movie, y'all. I don't know if you've heard about this Orson Welles fella. (laughs) Or this movie Citizen Kane. (laughs) But like, there's some good stuff in here. (laughs) So uh, until then. (laughs) This was apparently a much better novel than it was a movie. And we probably should have mentioned that earlier in the episode. But oh well. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Uh, Let's see. Inter-office memo to Miss Foyle. I'm sorry I said you cross your legs in conferences. What you do. I'm sorry I said they demoralize me. But they do. I'm sorry you seem to think that I... I'm making love to you. <laughs>